Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Heart Sutra. The noble Avalokitesh together. The noble Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, while practicing the deep practice of Prajnaparamita, looked upon the five skandhas and, seeing they were empty of self-existence, said, "Here, Shariputra, form is emptiness." Emptiness is form. Emptiness is not separate from form. Form is not separate from emptiness. Whatever is form is emptiness. Whatever is emptiness is form. The same holds for sensation and perception, memory and consciousness. Here, Shariputra, all dharmas are defined by emptiness. Not birth or destruction, purity or defilement, completeness or deficiency. Therefore, Shariputra, in emptiness there is no form, no sensation, no perception, no memory, and no consciousness. No eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, and no mind. No shape, no sound, no smell, no taste, no feeling, and no thought. No element of perception from eye to conceptual consciousness. No causal link from ignorance to old age and death. And no end of causal link from ignorance to old age and death. No suffering, no source, no relief, no path, no knowledge, no attainment, and no non-attainment. Therefore, Shariputra, without attainment, bodhisattvas take refuge in Prajnaparamita and live without walls of the mind, without walls of the mind and thus without fears. They see through delusions and finally nirvana. All Buddhas, past, present, and future, also take refuge in Prajnaparamita. They realize unexcelled, perfect enlightenment. You should therefore know the great mantra of Prajnaparamita, the mantra of great magic, the unexcelled mantra, the mantra equal to the unequaled, which heals all suffering and is true, not false. The mantra in Prajnaparamita spoken thus, Gate Gate Para Gate Parasan Gate Bodhisvaha. Good evening. It's so nice that you can all be here at such a crazy time. <laughs> and I said that last week, watch, it's going to become insane. 
And if you've been out in the city today, everything is backed up. <laughs> and uh, the interesting thing about it, though, that I've noticed is that if you're not in a car, um, you're smiling. <laughs> People walking in the snow have just looked so happy. And uh, it's really lovely. I've had a lot of nice encounters with, with people today. And um, I've, been, I've been thinking a lot about walking because um, in this issue of uh, Brick, which is a nice literary magazine that you can get, uh, there's an interview with uh, Werner Herzog, who's a wonderful filmmaker, some of you might know. He has a great film out right now about the South Pole. And um, I didn't know this about him, but his practice is walking. Since he was a young boy, he walks everywhere. He's walked across countries. Um, he talked about uh, when his friend Bruce Chatwin was dying, he walked across two countries to go see him and said, you can't die until I get there. <laughs> He has a rucksack he takes with him, and uh, he walks. That's his practice. He's walked all over the world. And um, he says that the only way to travel is to walk. There's a comedian named Steve Wright who also says something like this. He says, um, everything's in walking distance if you have the time. <laughs> so... Um, that will be our jumping off point into the Heart Sutra, which I'd like to study at walking pace. So that means we're going to walk through it word by word. And I was trying to do the math of that, and I think it will take three months. <laughs> so do you have the time? <laughs> and when you walk, one of the things you can do when you're walking is pay close attention to details. And sometimes that seems just like fun with etymology or mental gymnastics, but they're actually, you know, going through word by word and understanding a short, short text like this. And this text, by the way, is all of Buddhism in a little nutshell, a little acorn. And um, studying in this way really helps clarify your own practice and your own life and your own actions. And... Uh, so I hope that it will be helpful if we move through this very slowly. And we're also going to move through it in a non-academic way. So I hope we can look at the text really as it relates to your life and your practice, which are one and the same thing. I'll turn the light up. Um, so this text is um, called the Heart Sutra. It was a text written in Chinese originally and back translated into Sanskrit to make it seem official. Um, and uh, that's one of the reasons why you hear the text uh, talk about prajna, and the proper Sanskrit would be pragna. Um, pragna paramita, heart, hridya, the hrid is the heart sutra. And... Um, The text is Avalokiteshvara's response to Shariputra, who is a, um, uh, you could say he's somebody who has studied the details of Buddhist epistemology and psychology in such detail, in su with such finesse, and almost like a virtuoso of Buddhist psychology. And he's still asking somebody to talk about how to practice. And this is Avalokiteshvara's response. And I don't have her here. Some of you have seen her. She sits here sometimes. And um, so in China, she's Kuan Yin. Um, and um, if you ever see the, the image of Avalokiteshvara, um, does anybody know the image? Really beautiful of her. She's, she's on a kind of lotus flower. And she's floating, not floating, she's balancing herself in the ocean. And it's really wavy. And she's one of the only deities who's not upright. She's kind of leaning, she's like surfing. <laughs> and the waves are the waves of samsara. 
the waves, the waves of uh, meaningless everyday habit encounters. Just the stuff that you run into when you're walking. And um, um, she's, she's trying to get herself centered. And it's a very appealing image. It's so human, you know. And uh, her head's tilted. And um, she has tears in her eyes. And she's holding a bottle that she's pouring back into the ocean. And so the tears, the salt water in her eyes, which is everything. If you've lived a little bit and uh, you actually open to your experience of living, you get salt water over here. Has anybody had this experience? (laughs) I had this experience once I... I fell in love. Has anybody done this before? <laughs> uh, with somebody on Salt Spring Island. Has anyone done that before? <laughs> really interesting. And I and you know, of course, we had to say goodbye. And I took the ferry back to Vancouver. And I was just. Do you know that feeling when you've fallen for somebody and then you're separated, and it feels like someone's like torn out your guts, and. Um, and uh, there I was, Avalokiteshvara, wannabe, <laughs> floating across the... And, uh, and the cafeteria on the ferry was closed, but the fluorescent sign on it was shining like this, the open sign. And I was sitting there, just a mess, you know, looking out at the waves. And in the reflection, in the glass of the water, <coughs> was just the sign going, open. Open, open, open. And I remember feeling in myself like the way you can go two ways when you're overwhelmed by the waves. You can um, start the whole longing, wanting, Nick Cave energy, or you can just open, 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 open to what's here right now in the same way that when you're breathing in the sitting practice, you're opening to what's actually occurring right now. And sometimes it's really, really uncomfortable. And um, the Heart Sutra is about that. It's about the way of the heart. Is that what Jack Kornfield called it? Path of the Heart? Is that what it is called? Mm-hmm. What's that book called? Yeah. The path, path of the, the Heart. Yeah, I love that title. Yeah. Um, but I guess once it becomes a title, you can't use it anymore. <laughs> so Heart Sutra Wisdom of the Heart Sutra which is just saying open open but it has to be explained so Avalokiteshvara is explaining it and in her iconography I, I've been talking all day in her iconographic form she is expressing what it means to live from the heart and she's not standing in samastitihi. She's trying to get her balance. And she's taken all the tears that she's ever cried, which she's put in a bottle. And she's taken the bottle and she's pouring it back into the ocean. So she's taking all of your tears, everything you've ever felt and encountered, and she's giving it back. And it's interesting to think about that ecologically. That, that your tears are actually emotionally what connect you with everybody else. But ecologically, they're just made of the stuff that supports you in every way, non, non-human material elements, unaffected by clinging. Um... So Ava, um, Avalokiteshvara. So there's a word you recognize in there right away, which is Ishvara, right? Which is um, basically like a master. Some people translate it as God. But it's kind of like 
someone who's masterful. Someone who's masterful. And uh, uh, loka, lo, which is that's where we get the English word look. Um, so avalokiteshvara basically means one one who looks down, one who looks down on the world, not looking down in a kind of hi- hierarchical way, but one who's kind of like looking into the world, looking into things, even in the mess of things. And that's you. That's you floating there, not floating, and surfing might not be the best, the best word either, but like trying to get some balance in the center of the storm, in the heart of the storm. And um, the, the term Kuan Yin, Kuan Yin is the Chinese version, um, means one who looks down upon sound, or one who can enter sound. And the sound, of course, is the sound of pain and joy. All the sounds we make. Yeah. It's amazing listening to babies. Like in one day, they make every single sound you could ever, ever hear. Crying and laughing and joy and quiet all together. So this is your job if you're Kuan Yin. Your job is to not turn away. Is to um, smell and taste and really know um, those waves of samsara. And there's a wonderful text that comes a lot later called the uh, Vegetable Root Sutra. And uh, the beginning of it is really profound. I love this this passage. I'll read it to you because I think it relates directly to our approach to the Heart Sutra. Soil that is dirty grows the countless things. Water that is clear has no fish. Thus, as a mature person you properly include and retain a measure of grime. You can't just go along enjoying your own private purity and restraint. Let me say that again. Soil that is dirty grows the countless things. That's a good thing. Water that is clear has no fish. Thus, as a mature person, You properly include and retain a measure of grime. You can't just go along enjoying your own private private purity and restraint. What does that mean to you? Anybody? Little dirty, yeah. yeah. I, I think we were talking about this last week, right? We were talking about um, when this this uh, intimacy that arises in the practice is actually activated in your life. It's kind of messy. It's not like perfectly pure, like some idealized diet or something. You know, it's kind of messy, and it's really, really hard. It's really hard. There's no way to live. You know? And what this Heart Sutra is saying is that like even though there's no way to live, there there seems to be a kind of innate wisdom that we all have. And it doesn't spell out what that wisdom is, but it spells out what it's not. And what it's not is fear. It's, it's the absence of fear. There's this innate wisdom. But it doesn't tell you how you do that. That's your practice. It's how to touch that. Open, open. That's fine. Um, and this is where we get the, the word um, prajna, pragna. Uh, some of you know gnya. Gnya is where uh, we get the term gna, or like in gnosis. Um, which is to know, which is where we get the word kno, which they got rid of the G and added a K somewhere along the line. We got kno, and then someone decides to drop the K. We still spell it that way, but to know. So, uh, like, jnana is is knowing, knowledge. But pragna, which is usually translated as wisdom, just means 
before knowledge, before knowing. So pra means in advance. So pragna is knowing before knowing. Seeing before seeing. Hearing before hearing. Looking before looking. To know before you know. Do you understand that? It's the knowing that happens before the mind divides things up. It's the intimacy that's present before the wanting. Before the wanting to change things. It's the recognition of the way that interdependent interdependence exists prior to the mind that splits things up into this and that, me and other, self and object. Pragna. Before knowing. Knowing before knowing. Does this mean anything to you? Again, so this is not just like fun etymology. What does this mean to you? Knowing before knowing. What does that mean? Knowing before knowing. Kind of an intuition. You don't have to be right. Just it's a thing from practice, though, it's like what's behind all the like thoughts, feelings, mental uh-huh. activities behind uh-huh. all that. There's mm-hmm. kind of validity, but not validity. <laughs> you know, yeah. like words can't describe yeah. it. Somebody else. Pragna, knowing before knowing. Don't be shy. Do you? Is it more like when, in like sort of like an intuition, you feel, uh-huh. and then immediately you connect, and then in comes like thoughts, and you sort of your brain sort of analyze it, and then uh-huh. you kind of change your thought and feeling from that. Innocence? Innocence. Knowing before knowing, innocence. We'll have to explore that. Um, Loose origory. This is in a chapter in this wonderful book called To Be Two which basically means how to leave people alone. (laughs) To be two. (laughs) And um, um, she's talking about how the antidote to our culture, she talks about our culture as being a culture that happens on the exhale. Meaning, when you talk too much, you can't speak and inhale at the same time. Mm -hmm. Too much exhaling. So she's suggesting a new kind of culture. And here's what she says. The culture of silence can be rediscovered in two ways. One is that of the Buddha and the Yogini. It is a cultivation of silence in relationship with nature, silence with one's own body, and sometimes silence with the other, but in a master-disciple relationship, ultimately to be left behind in favor of a culture of silence. The end of the path is silence. This can be explained in terms of renunciation of all forms of attachment to objects, which bring with them suffering caused by a requisite parcelization of the self. So she sets up on the one hand silence, and on the other hand clinging to objects. And when there's clinging to objects, she has this beautiful term, a requisite parcelization of the self. That when you divide things up into subject and object, which comes after knowing before knowing, 
then you, you've created these different parcels of experience, which creates a fragmented self. Just like when you see a beautiful piece of art or a sunset, it's, it's the moment of seeing where there's just what's happening before you decide anything about it. When you don't make up your mind about something. But there's still thinking. Maybe you felt that if anybody's ever been in a car accident. Your car is spinning down the highway out of control. Or if anybody's ever been stabbed you know, or shot. You get shot and there's thinking. But there's, there's no additional... Uh, self-reference that's happening. You're, you're not creating a story about it. And even the Buddha says this. The Buddha says, if you get shot with an arrow, you don't look down at the arrow and say, what's it made of? Is it wood or metal? And from what direction was it shot? You pull it out. You know, Bernie Glassman says the same way. He says, if your left hand gets cut, your right hand immediately comes over to help. That's prajna. That's wisdom. That's yoga. It's intimacy. Or as Lucy Rigger says, the culture of silence. Culture of silence. What she means by that is to be too. To, that my freedom is dependent on guaranteeing your freedom. And your freedom is dependent on my being able to protect it. And I can protect your freedom with silence. Even silent talking. Where the talking doesn't have in it all of the thorns and hooks of expectations and greed and hatred and so on. But it's also not pure. Because it's really difficult to be able to engage with each other in a way where it's honest and nonviolent and um, still covering territory that's unknown. Um, so the first sentence is the noble Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva. That's you while practicing the deep practice of prajnaparamita. So, paramita, uh, paramita, uh, means uh, 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 well, you get this in the, in, the, in, the, um, in the mantra at the end, pada also shows it. It means to go beyond to go beyond, and it's often translated as going beyond the other shore, going to the other shore. So, doing this deep wisdom practice of going to the other shore, going to the other shore, and the other shore is home. And so you don't really go there, because you're there already. But from the relative perspective, there's something to practice. And from the absolute perspective, everything's already interdependent. So there's this interesting image, right? There's the, the inherent wisdom and there's the movement to the other shore together. Just like form and emptiness, waves and water. And looked upon the five skandhas do you see now why we uh, have been studying this? Looked upon the five aggregates and seeing they were empty of self-existence. So he looked upon perception and material form, feeling, consciousness, and... Mental formations. And saw that they were empty of self. They were empty of self. 
And you might know the story, uh, the wonderful story um, in the Pali Canon where um, Bahia is walking down the road and sees a vision, has a vision, and a voice comes to him and says, Bahia, you are a really gifted practitioner of this path, but you're not ready to teach. And Bahia says, well, what should I do? And his voice says, if you keep teaching, you're just going to be leading people astray. So go to the next town and find Gotama Buddha and ask him what to do. So if he takes this seriously, if you were walking down a path after you gave a yoga class and some voice came out, <laughs> you know, like your favorite teacher, you know. So some there's like, you know, Diane Bruni standing over you <laughs> saying like, you shouldn't be teaching. <laughs> I mean, that's not the best example. Um, and uh, what should I do? Go to the next town. So he goes to the next town, and uh, the Buddha's on his alms round and um, carrying his bowl. And um, he says, excuse me, venerable sir, um, could you teach me the Dharma? And the Buddha says, not now, Bahia. Um, I'm in my alms round. And uh, so Bahia says, <coughs> excuse me, venerable sir, you or I could die at any time. Please teach me the Dharma now. And uh, the Buddha says, no, not now. Comes back, Come back after the alms round. Third time, like every other story in the Pali Canon. Goes back and says, you and I, really, we could die any time now. Life is impermanent. Please teach me the Dharma. And the Buddha does. He puts down his alms bowl. And he gives the fastest teaching of any of his uh, teachings. And it's the quickest story of enlightenment in the Pali Canon. So listen carefully. <laughs> and he says, uh, Bahia, in the herd, there's only the herd. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. In the felt, there is only the felt. This is the way out of suffering. And Bahia wakes up. And then he gets killed by a cow. It's true. But the teaching is so profound, really. Like, just so skilled that in what you hear is just what you hear. In what you feel, it's just what you're feeling. In what you sense, it's what you sense. You don't have to do something right away. First, just feeling that, just sensing that. That's what it is. It's the essence of that thing is just as it's being presented. You see? And what happened at the time of the Heart Sutra is that after the Buddha's teachings were put down, a few centuries after the Buddha's death, um, a movement started. The Sarvastivadins showed up, and they started like reinterpreting the teachings uh, back into a reincarnation pattern where there is a soul that all this is happening to. I think we talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago, and uh, so the Heart Sutra is a direct response to that movement, saying, "Look at." everything you perceive. It's not about you. Look at what you feel, whether it's positive, negative, negative or neutral. It's, it's not directly related to a self. It's just experienced in awareness. Can you see that? That's the heart wisdom. That's the heart-mind. That's the ideogram of your life. But we don't see it. Because we refer it back to a me. You see? (sighs) 
how many feelings and sensations we have in one day is unbelievable. And how much we take those feelings and we, we linguistically refer them back to a me in our own mind. But they have as much to do with you as the bird song and old growth stands and the lake snow. But because they seem to be happening in an awareness that we've been so used to reifying as ours, then we think it's mine. The other way of understanding this is that what you notice itself does not have a self. So a feeling itself is a conditioned phenomenon that's passing and dependent on so many conditions that it, it, it's not a thing. So it's not just that it's not referring to you as a thing, but the thing you're making a thing is not a thing because of interdependence, dependent origination, intimacy, because of yoga. You see? And it takes some wisdom to be able to see things in that way. Because when we experience pain, we, we, uh, we separate the pain out and we objectify it. And don't we do this with other people in other countries? You know. Or sometimes, you know, we really remove ourselves from certain groups of people. We objectify them. Especially at this time of year, you know, the... The interesting thing about this time of year when you're getting all these letters to, to give money, charity, is uh, when I look around, I see the people who give money are people who don't have money. When you watch on the street people who are giving people money, they're usually the people who don't have money because they're, they're closer. The separation's not so um, significant. Watch, walk around Parkdale. Walk around Parkdale with your eyes open. And the people who uh, help each other out are the people who are closer to the ground. And sometimes I I watch this kind of thing happening in Parkdale and I, uh, I see the Heart Sutra just happening. Because um, even in the midst of great addiction, there can be generosity. You all know this, right? You, you know, the, the, the thing that's unique about your suffering, maybe each of you in this room has a particular history of addiction or obsession or compulsion. Or Have I gone through all the lists, Ron? <laughs> <laughs> um, and like, it's that pain that you felt which is probably part of what brought you here tonight, um, that connects you with people. And actually, people who share the same kind of pain with you, often the first, when you first recognize them, sometimes are the people you don't like. Because like you recognize, oh my God, they're that. You know? And then you start to see, oh, that's me. That's me. And that's, Prajna. That's the wisdom. The wisdom to not take it as self. Or to not see other people as solid entities walking around in this objective world. That they're also you and they're also all those tears that Kuan Yin's floating on. And you're Kuan Yin and you're the ocean. Simultaneously. So, so Pragna reminds us of this great, great matter of having been born, ha- having to live in an imperfect world, and then having to die. And if you read the newspapers now and you, you look around, you know, uh, people are losing their jobs and we're in a recession. And... Uh, 
you know, you can you can you can take that that uh, sound bite and really meditate on it. You know, that if you lost your money right now and you lost your job, would you be okay? is a good thing to give attention to. Renunciation. Sometimes it's involuntary. Um, so the noble Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, while practicing a deep practice of Prajnaparamita, looked down upon five aggregates and saw that they are empty of self-existence. Is this clear? Are there any questions? Is this clear? I don't want to go further than this tonight. It's really important that you meditate on this so that we can create a culture of silence in a culture of exhaling. Someone gave me this book. I love this book. Uh, 80 years of American artists writing about their art. Here's Robert Motherwell in 1946. The activity of the artist makes him less socially conditioned and more human. Read that again. <laughs> the activity, not the statement or the art of the artist, but just the activity of the artist makes him less socially conditioned and more human. It is then that he is disposed to revolution. Society stands against anarchy. The artist stands for the human against society. Society, therefore, treats him as an anarchist. Society's logic is faulty, but its intimation of an enemy is not. Still, the social conflict with society is an incidental obstacle in the artist's path. I think I've read this 20 times today. Um... In other words, the, the obstacle society is incidental. It's, it's the fact that, you're, that the artist is coming up against his or her conditioning that, that gives you the fuel to engage in an activity that undoes your social conditioning. And so society, because of its organized form, is always going to... Um, rub up against the artist in such a way. And so the Heart Sutra is the activity of art. The Art Sutra. And again, Robert Motherwell is not talking about the plastic form of art and saying like, you know, it's an artist that makes a painting that's going against the... That's not what he's saying. He's just saying the very fact of artistic creative activity goes against the way that a culture is created by reifying that energy that's transformative and putting it into a fixed form. See? So again, this action of the Heart Sutra is not just happening intrapsychically inside you, but it's also happening in the culture. And so by vowing to be silent, to be honest, to live uninhibited, you're activating the Heart Sutra. And then the Sutra is not a holy, sacred text anymore. Chanted at monasteries all over. It's alive in the street. And that's the anarchic activity of the artist, which is you. Almost like a freedom of movement. Not like a freedom of movement. It's the freedom to move. Yeah. yeah, like Werner Herzog, just walking. It's the freedom to move. Like the situationalists, or just the freedom to move about. 
So lovely. And what happened to the Heart Sutra is it gets chanted and then interpreted as another ritualized mantra that you do at the monastery in the morning. And uh, so I want to add some grime to the Heart Sutra. (laughs) And it's going to take three months, guaranteed. ETA, three months. (laughs) And then we'll be on the other shore. But immediately the mind goes, oh, the other shore must be better than this. I can't wait to get to the other shore. I'm going to come every week (laughs) so I can get to the other shore. So, as Luz Urigri says, not um, splitting up the self by objectifying everything out there, everything in here. Stephen Batchelor calls it a a mind in a body in a world. False, false, false. No, no, no. No, no, no. Bad lady. So when you go to visit your family this week, or friends, or shopping, to cultivate the culture of silence. And if you think that's keeping your mouth shut, that's staged. Or if you usually keep your mouth shut, there are some people who they sit at the dinner table and they don't say a word because they're like frozen. And that's not silence because inside they're analyzing everything they do and checking and rechecking themselves. So how can you speak from that place of silence, of respect and difficulty? Remember, Avalokiteshvara is like trying to like keep it together and stay balanced. And how is she staying balanced? You could say that the way she stays balanced is that she takes her tears and she gives them back. She doesn't hold on to them. She pours them back into um, English Bay. So um, when you when you see cousins or whatever this week you're going to do, like people are going to get on your nerves. But like just letting that move through, those are just the aggregates, affected by clinging or unaffected by clinging. But unaffected by clinging is not dissociation. It's deep, 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 deep feeling until there's no separation. And then you look around the dinner table and everything's okay. Even the turkey. In our family, the tofurkey is so disgusting (laughs) that we just started going for the turkey. Yeah genetically modified something. So, um, let's chant. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Awaken. Do not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. 
May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free from every form of discontent. May all beings be free from every form of discontent. May all humans in Toronto be warm tonight. May all humans in Toronto be warm tonight. Namaste. Thank you again for coming. Uh, next week will be our last class, whatever this is, uh, for six weeks um, until the middle of February. And um, so, like I said last week, uh, I, I don't like telling people to come back. But at this time of year, it's really good when the days are long with so many things to do and you're being social or whatever you're doing. Uh, or lonely. For some people, this is a very, very lonely time of year, too. Um, to, to come here and just be quiet and hear whatever you hear um, so that you can go back out into the, the culture as an artist. <laughs>